This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hi, and welcome to a special Amicus Plus. This is our deep dive with Slate's wonderful Mark Joseph Stern. We do this specially for our Slate Plus members because we love you so much. Friends, you may have heard by now that on Monday night, Politico leaked a draft 98-page opinion of what is an early draft of the majority decision in Dobbs that is the landmark challenge to Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban. Look, many things are clear from that draft. For one, its author, Justice Sam Alito, swinging for the fences and that he had four votes to do it. The opinion says, bluntly, we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. And the document is labeled opinion of the court. And so there it is. Now, Politico also reported that they knew that three liberal justices were writing dissents. Another unprecedented leak came down later Monday night in which CNN reported that the chief justice would have voted to uphold the Mississippi ban, but he wasn't willing to go so far as to overturn Roe. On Tuesday morning, the chief justice authenticated the draft document, so it is a real thing. I'm not sure we had a lot of doubts about that. The chief justice also announced that an investigation into the leaker will begin. So now, look, there's a whole lot of Hercule Poirot whodunit talk that I think is distracting from the actual fact that in two very short months or less, abortion will be banned in 22 states and that this Mississippi law has no exception for cases of rape or incest and that plans to pass a federal abortion ban are now being robustly discussed. This is all, without doubt, the most devastating decision for generations of American women who have ordered their lives, their careers, their families in reliance on the protections of Roe. This also calls into doubt the entire range of substantive due process rights that are protected by the same liberty interests that Justice Alito just brushed away as inconsequential. And perhaps most urgently, this really does raise the specter of abortion, miscarriage, and fetal harm being criminalized in ways that we are already beginning to see. So for those of you who felt that Mark and I were overreacting when Texas allowed SB8 to go into effect in September of 2021, do let us know where we were wrong. So Mark, welcome back. Thank you. Not a lot of sleep over the last 24 hours, but there's no one I'd rather be discussing this absolute nightmare with than you, Dolly. And I want to give you a chance, before we even start, Mark, I believe the day Anthony Kennedy stepped down, but certainly the day Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed, I remember you writing, here's how this is going to happen. And in the Wind of people saying, no, 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 there's plenty of time, you know, Chief Justice Roberts, incrementalist, Brett Kavanaugh, moderate, Amy Coney Barrett, solicitous of all comers and a big, open-minded, non-radical human. In the face of all that, I think you have been saying, this is what's coming And it's happened. And I'm really thunderstruck at the number of people who are shocked, shocked. I'm so surprised, which is met in equal measure by the people who are like, well, I'm not surprised at all because what? 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 What's happening? (laughs) 
You know, when Brett Kavanaugh joined the court in 2018, I did make a prediction about this that turned out to be wrong. And my prediction was that the court would take an incrementalist approach to rolling back Roe versus Wade and that the court would take a series of cases that examined these various laws coming out of Republican-led states that either moved back the line, like this one actually, which is a 15-week ban, or that outlawed abortion for some specific reason, like race, sex, or disability, or some some restriction on how abortion clinics are run and use those decisions to chip away at the basis of Roe until finally uh, it could just say, all right, look, we've already killed Roe. We're just going to admit now that it is overturned. And that's not what happened. And I think the reason why it's just three words, Amy Coney. As soon as Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, the calculus fundamentally shifted because there were five justices who clearly despised Roe, who no longer had to rely on Chief Justice. Justice John Roberts and his somewhat more cautious and institutionalist incrementalism and could go whole hog. And when those justices agreed to take up this case, it seemed like the handwriting was on the wall from then on, and especially after oral arguments, that there were five votes to just do away with Roe all at once, all together, right now, rather than drag out the process and force the court to go through years of suffering. There are five, and we now know there are clearly five who just really want to get this over with and abolish the constitutional right to abortion once and for all. So, Mark, I guess I don't, as I intimated up top, want to spend a lot of time on the whodunit because I do think it's a real distraction from what is happening. And I think that part of why Mitch McConnell and Laura Ingram and everybody is screaming about how this is a worse violation on the rule of law than January 6th is a way of just saying, you know, look away, look away, don't pay any attention to what the court has done. Let's talk about false flag liberal Black Lives Matter protesters again. So I don't want to credit any of that as being real. But I do think before we get to the nitty gritty on this opinion, it is worth talking about the serious questions about what a leak of this magnitude does to the rule of law, the trust within the court itself, the trust that justices have for each other, for their clerks. These are all norms I think I mistakenly believed to be immutable, certainly after The Brethren was published and everybody was really careful. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't get a clerk to talk to me for love or money. And the justices have been so scrupulously careful to abide by the post-Brethren norms about talking. So this isn't just a question of gossipy, who snarked and who told and ha 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 and who's doing what. This is a question of how John Roberts could ever get his institution to recover from what feels to me to be a seismic blow to their own norms about how they operate. I agree that it is a blow. I also agree that it's a bit of a distraction because the main story is that Roe will be overturned, right? And I think the Republican grievance machine can never stop running. Even when the conservative side is winning, it still has to create new grievances. 
to whip up frustration and anger and momentum. And I think that's a big part of what we're seeing here. It's not just a distraction from the substance of this draft decision, but it's also part of the formula that Republicans use to keep their voters and their base engaged and to keep them voting, which is to uh, depict this country as so bitterly divided that the left is just constantly trying to destroy the right to undermine every norm in the book. And that for all that the left uh, complains about January 6th, as you intimated that they are the ones who are doing the true law breaking and that the entire rule of law in this nation depends upon finding and punishing the leaker. I think that's ridiculous, of course. I I have no idea who the leaker is. I don't have any particular insight. My suspicion is that it's either a clerk on the liberal side or a clerk on the conservative side. If it's a clerk on the liberal side, then they are trying to shame one of the members of the majority into flipping. If it's a member of the conservative side, then they're probably trying to shore up all five votes by making it more difficult for someone like Kavanaugh to flip. But there are infinite other possibilities. It could be a justice. We don't know. Justices have leaked in the past. A justice on the left could be so infuriated by this that she wants to warn the country with this kind of shot across the bow or to force the majority to see the kind of blowback and outcry that they will face when and if this decision is formally released. Whatever it is, though, yes, it will shatter the trust in that building because there is such a certainty, an almost delusional certainty among court staff clerks and justices, that there will never be a leak, that everything is totally secret, at least for years and years, that uh, every conversation, every draft, every word uttered in that building will stay in that building and never reach the public. And this must be so difficult just for the justices to process because they have been weaned on that fantasy forever. And as you said, at least since the early 80s, it has held fairly strong And now it has been completely shattered. So I think there will be immense bitterness and mistrust behind the scenes, more so than there already was. And I think it will be very difficult to put the pieces back together now that this has happened. In this particular case, what do you do if you're Alito? What do you do if you're Roberts? I don't know the answer, but it seems to put everybody in a pretty terrible bind. Yeah, and I I think I would like to connect that sense that you've just really given voice to the sense of kind of anarchy, you know, that there's no rules anymore. And we're going to get the outcome we want, and we don't care. And I want to link it up to the opinion itself, Mark. And I know you wrote about this on Monday night. But in a weird way, the opinion itself feels like it's written by arsonists. I mean, I just think so much of the care and solicitude that you hear from justices about the justices who came before, about the people who crafted Casey, that is deeply ingrained, that you just don't write an opinion saying, man, Roe was a shoddy piece of drafting. Man, Casey was a capitulation that was predicated on nothing. And one of the things that's striking to me beyond the doctrinal shift, which we'll get to in a second, is this tone shift, this kind of full-on Tucker Carlson, Rush Limbaugh, 
name-calling. You know, there's abortionists. We're snarking at Justice Blackman. We're talking about eugenics and Clarence Thomas's pet theory about uh, why abortion was deployed to harm black women and their babies. I guess I just feel like the tonal shift inside the opinion is almost as striking as the norm shift you're describing within the court itself. And here is the part where we have to say, I think, that this is a draft opinion and that it was circulated apparently on February 10th, right? And the way this works at the court is that the author of the majority opinion will write it and then circulate it to the other justices. Some of them will join, some of them will begin their dissents or concurrences. And so I think that what we're seeing is pure, unadulterated Alitoism. We're seeing what this opinion would have looked like if he had simply hit uh, save on the document and then uploaded it directly to the Supreme Court's website when he was done, rather than receiving input from justices like Kavanaugh and Barrett, toning down certain sections, bringing them in line with a few compromises, even if they're not substantive and just tonal. And I actually think there's a possibility that Alito may have swung for the fences as a tactical way to ensure that there would still be some snark and scorn in the final product. I think it's quite possible that Alito said, well, you know, Brett and Amy are going to make me tone down some of this stuff, but I'll put as much of it in as possible to make it more difficult for them to eliminate all of it. I will go all the way to fury mode and just deride Harry Blackman as a partisan hack and a baby killer. Just write off Anthony Kennedy as a pretentious doof who had no idea what he was doing. I will completely disclaim these past justices, these past decisions, and hope that Brett and Amy don't make me walk it back too much. And that tone, whether it ends up in the final opinion or not, it is shocking, I think, for us to see, because when Alito does pure Alitoism, it's usually in a dissent or concurrence, or he's writing for himself or maybe himself and Thomas. And this is uh, ostensibly speaking for the court, and I just think it's eye-popping and incredible incredibly unusual for us to read an Alito opinion labeled opinion of the court that is so nasty and acidic and vile and disrespectful because it just has never happened in the past. So let's walk through the opinion itself. You and I read it on Monday night, I think with increasing horror at the sweep of what was happening. I think Justice Alito is more or less saying that because abortion, you know, the word appears nowhere in the Constitution and abortion isn't one of the unenumerated rights that are, quote, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition or implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. This is the Glucksburg case. It just doesn't count for anything. There's a massive appendix. He's definitely going to pains to say that states all criminalized abortion. But I wonder if you can just walk us through the logic of how he more or less disposes not just of Roe, but all of Roe's progeny, because Roe has, of course, been affirmed time and time again notably by a lot of Republican judges. So I think you just captured the overview pretty nicely. The basic idea here is the 14th Amendment's due process clause protects certain aspects of liberty that are not mentioned outright in the Constitution. Some of those uh, are widely agreed upon. The right to raise your children and direct their upbringing. The right to interracial marriage. 
Some of them are more controversial, like the right to abortion, the right to contraception, the right to same-sex marriage. And what Alito says is, if we want to be principled about establishing these unenumerated rights, we have to look to history. We have to see whether they are deeply rooted in our nation's history and tradition. And if they aren't, if they are not to be found in the laws of our country going back to at least the 19th century, then we should basically never protect them under the Constitution. And so he goes to great lengths to explain that abortion was, in fact, banned in a number of states when the 14th Amendment was ratified uh, throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. He, he says it's not at all deeply rooted. And then he says, well, because it's not rooted and because it's not mentioned in the Constitution, we simply have no authority as a court to protect it. And then he says, oh, but by the way, don't worry. No one should read this opinion as casting doubt on any other unenumerated rights that rest on this exact same reasoning that we are now trashing in order to overturn Roe. And I just don't think that disclaimer is worth the paper it's written on, because if you take his analysis seriously, then this whole line of cases, not just about abortion, not just about contraception, but also especially about LGBTQ equality, they are all quite suspect, if not illegitimate and unlawful, because they establish rights that are not deeply rooted any more so than abortion. I felt after Dobbs, and I think I said when we listened to the oral argument, it was in fact a tell that the more you heard justices trying to assuage us that none of these other cases are on the table, the more it felt like these other cases are on the table. And I just want to talk for a minute because it's clear Justice Alito wants to cabin this. It's just Roe we're talking about. But I do think once you pull out that piece at the bottom that says there's no such thing really as uh, unenumerated rights that were not seen as fundamental to liberty at the time of the founding, then everything falls, right? It's just really hard to see how, as you said, how Griswold survives, how loving the interracial marriage case survives. It goes on to, I think you're right. Lawrence v. Texas and Obergefell, all those by necessity are now on sand. And I'm hearing two different things. One is you're hysterical because now having warned us Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned. Oh, you were right. But this other bad stuff isn't going to happen, right? The, the kind of persistent, no, we'd like to stay frogs boiling in this pot for a little bit longer. <laughs> and then I guess the other thing I'm hearing is, no, there's a principal difference between abortion and all of the other progeny of, you know, Pierce and Myers and the cases that establish that the 14th Amendment substantive due process is meaningful and a profoundly important answer to chattel slavery and an answer to what do we do when we are trying to write a 14th Amendment that confers upon slaves all of the freedoms that they don't have. And it is to marry your partner. It is to raise your own children. It is to determine how many children you will have and how you will raise them. Those are not penumbras and emanations. That's a substantial, I think, building block of freedom. But I guess I'm curious if you can see some principle here that allows Justice Alito to say, oh, no, no, Obergefell is safe and don't worry about your birth control. Abortion is just different. 
you flick at in your piece that abortion has to do, I think you say this is Justice Kavanaugh, this is just different because it's taking a life. Yes. And, and that's what Alito lays out in his opinion. He says that abortion is sharply distinguished from other rights that were recognized in previous cases on which Roe relied because it destroys a potential life or an unborn human being. And so abortion is just sui generis because it involves basically what we view to be killing. And so we are not going to allow it to stand as precedent, but we'll simply pluck it out of this entire line of precedent and let the rest stand. And there are a few problems with that, as we've already discussed. Like, there are other precedents that have very similar reasoning that are not deeply rooted, that seem to be imperiled. But he actually does this kind of rhetorical trick to make it seem like he's saying that the gay rights cases are safe, but then not actually say that. So he has this passage where he's talking about other decisions that created or established unenumerated rights that are different from abortion, but that he says are safe and that the abortion decisions relied on, but that he's not overturning. And those are cases like loving, which we've discussed, contraception, sterilization, raising children. So he has that section and he basically says, these are okay. We're not going to overturn them. Whether you believe him or not, that's a whole other issue. But then he has a turn and he says, oh, by the way, There were also these cases that came after Roe, that came after Casey, that are more recent cases, that rely on a similar sense of individual autonomy that the court has to define. And those cases are Lawrence versus Texas and Obergefell versus Hodges. So the sodomy decision and the same-sex marriage decision, basically granting equal rights to gay people. And he doesn't put those in the list of precedents that are safe. Instead, he mocks them. And he says that they relied on this broad and hazy reasoning of individual autonomy, which taken to its logical extreme would create a fundamental right to illegal drug use and prostitution. And so that cannot be correct. So you can pluck out a few sentences of this opinion and make it sound like everything else is safe. But if you read these pages really closely, and again, they're subject to change, who knows what will happen. But right now, it sounds like some of those precedents are maybe safe, if you take Alito at his word, and some of them are definitely not because they are placed in the exact same bucket as the right to abortion, which this entire decision is overturning. So I take very little solace in these couple of lines that people are fixating on, and those who claim that I am overreacting, I guess time will tell, but I was also told that I was overreacting when I said the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe, and here we are. I wonder if you can talk for a second about why you think this opinion goes to Justice Sam Alito. Presumably, John Roberts peels off at conference and says, I'm not writing that Roe v. Wade is overturned, at which point Clarence Thomas is the senior justice in the majority. I think you and I had talked for some time about how there was at least a possibility that Amy Coney Barrett would write this because she was born to write this and because certainly she was placed on the court to write this. Do you have a, a theory? Uh, and, and we put this under rank speculation, so please no betting. But do you have a theory of why this goes to Sam Alito? 
I think it's the logical choice, actually. I think that Thomas probably wouldn't want it for himself because he holds very extreme views here and very strange views on precedent that are an outlier on this court. He doesn't believe in precedent. He doesn't think the court is obligated to follow it. And I suspect he will write some kind of concurrence where he gets to go full Thomas. And that leaves him with the choice of who to assign this to. Kavanaugh's not going to want it. He's a little bit too much of a squish. He doesn't his name on the opinion that overturns Roe. I think Barrett is too much of a junior justice. I think that because she is the newest justice on the court, it would look too obviously like pandering for Thomas to give it to her, the one woman, and say, oh, we have this one lady in our majority, and so she's going to get this opinion, even though she's only been on the court for two years. And I think that Gorsuch, he has the Thomas problem where he has idiosyncratic views that he's unwilling to tone down in many circumstances. And that leaves Alito as the kind of obvious choice. And there's a lot in this opinion that echoes Alito's decision in the Janus case some years back, where he overturned another very deeply entrenched precedent that allowed public sector unions to collect fair share fees from members who didn't want to be in the union, but who benefited from it. And this opinion follows the structure and the format of that one pretty closely. And it also follows the format of Alito's recent dissent arguing for the reversal of the decision called Smith versus Employment Division, which is a religious liberty case. So I think that Alito almost has like a program on his computer or in his brain that specializes in overturning progressive precedent by just rotely applying these stare decisis factors and criticizing the past decision and saying, we're wiping our hands of this. And he does it very emphatically and unflinchingly in this case. And I think if I'm Clarence Thomas, I'm happy with how this draft turned out because it does what it needs to do without alienating a squishier justice like Kavanaugh as much as Thomas or Gorsuch would if they were the ones who were authoring this thing. It's an astonishing thing, Mark, that where you just landed is where we just landed, which is that Alito is the person can bring together <laughs> disparate, moderate views. That's how far we have come. I want to say one thing that I think uh, is important and I should have led with, which is, as of this moment, dear listeners, abortion access is legal and available for anyone seeking care. And it's incredibly important to not put out the word that abortion ended in May of 2022. I do want to ask you, Mark, and I know you've been asked this a hundred times in the last couple of days. But I want to ask you what happens next in the 22 states that have trigger laws. We have states that have ghost laws, which are these laws that preexisted, Roe, that come back into effect. Can you just sketch out for us what happens if, in fact, this becomes the law of the land the last week of June, the first week of July? So I'll go with the Guttmacher Institute stats, which say that there are a little bit more than a dozen states that have trigger laws that will ban abortion the moment Roe falls. And there are about 10 more states that have either old laws on the books or new laws that are just on hold that will spring into effect in a very similar way if Roe falls. So that brings you to about 22 states where abortion will be entirely uh, or almost entirely outlawed in the days and weeks after Roe is overturned. There are four more states, including Florida, which has long been an abortion haven in the Southeast 
least, that will almost certainly pass a very stringent abortion ban in the coming weeks after Roe falls. And so that leaves us with 26 states where abortion is illegal, 24 where it has varying levels of legality, or there is a endless tussle between different branches of government. I'm thinking of places like North Carolina, which has a very Republican legislature, but a Democratic governor and state Supreme Court, at least for now. The big question is what happens on the federal level next. And it's noteworthy to me that in his draft, there is no section in this opinion where Alito says, as Scalia often did, that there's no national solution to abortion, that it can't be decided at a federal level, that maybe it can't can't even be decided by Congress, that this should go to the people of the states, that it should be a state-by-state issue. Instead, Alito uses this very cagey rhetoric where he talks about the people and their elected representatives, but he doesn't say whether that's their state representatives or whether that's their representatives in Washington, D.C., in Congress. And I think this opinion was written very carefully to keep the door open for anti-abortion activists to lobby for federal legislation now, not just a 15-week ban on the federal level, but also an outright ban on all abortions in every state, which is currently legislation with 19 co-sponsors in the Senate and more than 100 in the House, all Republicans, of course. So this does not end with just a state-by-state squabble. This is all going to the federal level. The end goal of the anti-abortion movement has always been a nationwide ban. And I think that Alito, at a bare minimum, is not opposed to congressional action that would override pro-choice laws in blue states because his opinion is super duper careful not to foreclose that option to tell the anti-abortion movement, we're kicking this to the people, but we're not saying it has to be state by state. However you guys want to sort this out, it's up to you. And let's just note that the Washington Post, even before this news dropped, was telling us pretty explicitly about leading anti-abortion groups that are working very hard to craft a nationwide ban, and the strategy is well underway. Before I say goodbye, Mark, I guess in this moment, I feel the need to ask you the question I feel like I ask you every other time we talk at least, which is... Folks are saying, what can I do? How did this happen? I'm so surprised. I'm not surprised. What's going on? This is crazy. Is this bad? I don't know. Are you, am I hysterical? And I guess I want to say the thing you and I say to soothe one another over all the time we've had these conversations, which is it's really ultimately not the court's decision. It's ours. And that we can't build a time machine and pack the court, and we can't build a time machine and do a better job in the 2016 election. But there are things we can do in the here and now, and I'd love to hear from you what folks who are listening who think that the only thing they can do is sob bitter tears, there are things one can do. Number one, give money to abortion funds. These are funds that help to cover the cost of abortion and increasingly transport patients from red states into blue states where they can legally terminate their pregnancies. One that I am especially fond of is called Jane's Due Process in Texas which helps minors bypass the parental consent requirements and get a legal abortion in a state where the laws are entirely against it. You can go online and look around for a fund in a state close to you, talk to your friends, but don't just go to Act Blue and give money to the Democrats tweeting about this. That is not going to directly help the people on the ground who most need your support. 
If you are a liberal who is tearing your hair out about this, you need to open up your wallet to abortion funds first and foremost before you think about the broader strategic angle on the political scene. The second thing I'll say is in terms of politics, you know, it, there is a bill in Congress right now that would add four seats to the Supreme Court, that would allow Joe Biden to appoint four liberals to create a new liberal majority that would prevent the court from overturning Roe. The only thing preventing Congress from passing that bill is politics. The politics of moderates like even Dianne Feinstein from California, who are hesitant to commit to meaningful and substantive court reform. This is the moment to try to get them to open their eyes to the urgency of this issue. If not now, I really don't know when. And so rather than everybody complaining about RBG not retiring or people in Wisconsin not voting in 2016 or Mitch McConnell blocking the seat, all of that stuff, very bad. But there are solutions that Democrats are unwilling to embrace. And so I think that it's simply more helpful and more proactive to get out there and start talking about solutions than to spend all day making your as mad as possible about the missteps that led us to this harrowing moment. And I agree resoundingly, as I am want to do, and I also think energy that we are spending right now taking the bait from people like Mitch McConnell, who want to suggest that the real story here is the liberals who leaked it, is equally a useless expenditure of our time and that getting caught up in Twitter fights is not the thing to do right now. Now is the time to yet again step up because there is an election and doors need a knocking and phone calls need a making. Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law for Slate and I for one could not have gotten through this week and certainly this term without you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you, Dahlia. And that is a wrap for this special bonus episode of Amicus Plus. Thank you so much for listening in. I also want to point you toward the conversation that I had with Mary Harris next door over on What Next. That's also out today. And hold on tight because a full Amicus episode is heading your way tomorrow with a simply extraordinary panel, including law professor and podcast host Melissa Murray, journalist Jess Bruder, and the host of Slate's brand new slow burn season, unpacking Roe v. Wade, the great Susan Matthews. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch with us at amicus at slate.com, or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham with extra special thanks to Madeline Ducharme. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and we are going to be back with you with another episode of Amicus tomorrow. Till then, hang on tight. Listener.